Hi, and welcome to this episode of Dharma Things. Um, we've got another bite-sized conversation for you here uh, this week with a wonderful, wonderful teacher that I know from India called Namita. Um, and it's such a pleasure to speak to her because we've, we were just saying that we've circled one another on Instagram for quite a few years since I did my training in India. And now eventually we get to meet and have a conversation. So hopefully we've got another little bite-sized discussion here that might get a little fun and interesting and maybe controversial but um hello namita introduce yourself to everybody <laughs> hi Miss. thank you thank you so much for having me over and you know it's going to be fun uh, interacting with you here so i am namita i am the founder of yoga nama i am a yoga teacher and an ayurveda wellness guide i create a lot of content around these subjects over and above teaching yoga as well i create video and written content and you will find it across my website and a lot of ott platforms in india and that, in a nutshell, is uh, <laughs> <laughs> fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> Just keep it bite-sized, yeah. yeah. So the 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 first thing that I wanted to talk to you about is really um, like what you do. I mean, you're like you said, wellness expert, yeah. Ayurveda expert. You create all these different types of content that kind of make these ancient practices which I mean we've got to admit you know Ayurveda and yoga are very very old practices that have been around for thousands of years um and you're making these accessible um so in the yoga world we love all these things in the western yoga world you know oh yeah. Ayurvedic ancient science etc but Ayurveda's seen as a little pseudo-scientific isn't it so Talk to us a little bit around what Ayurveda is. So Ayurveda was, if to simply define it, is the science of natural healing, which was prevalent in India at a time when modern science wasn't there. So it was the modern science of that era. And because it was through observation, awareness, experience, it has a lot of validity to it because these things do work. But yes, as we transition into the modern world, there are a lot of uh, facilities that are available, which may not make Ayurveda as relevant for today in certain aspects, but even more relevant than ever in today's aspects because it is mostly preventive. So when we look at treatment is when Ayurveda can, you know, there can be a discussion about whether Ayurveda is pseudoscience or not. But modern medicine is not as much focused on prevention. And that is, I think, what through functional medicine or through integrated approach to even which even doctors are using they're trying to incorporate now but the aspect of prevention has always been there so i will not go into treatment because that's the realm of doctors and medical experts but yes when it comes to prevention ayurveda is not pseudoscience because a lot of research has shown that the practices mentioned do work and second uh, second thing is that ayurveda doesn't just look at human body in isolation something that modern science does it connects the mind to the body to the spiritual aspects and which makes it more holistic and that is not available anywhere else today so that makes it relevant so i think there is there is a bit of both to it it depends on what parts you take away and incorporate in your uh, lifestyle yeah yeah because i mean western science is very much um just focused on the cure isn't it like you know if there's a problem fix it 
yeah. we don't like you said it's not a holistic approach it's a it's a solution at the end of an awful lot of issues and it looks at everything in a very isolated sense you have an issue an X part of the body in your heart, it'll focus on the heart, you will have a cardiologist who will not connect it to any other part of the body. Or, you know, let's say if we look at yoga, you could, you know, you will be a more familiar analogy, we might be having pain in the knee, uh, modern science might have looked at just the knee being the issue. But now as functional anatomy is evolving, you go to the ankle, you'll go to the, sh you know, hip joint, somewhere lower back core control, everything could play a role. And that's what has always been there in traditional sciences, because they looked at everything integratedly. There was no in-depth specialization where one person just went overboard onto one particular aspect and ignored the others. Ah, so, yeah, that's a really good analogy, because this is something that we come across a lot in yoga, isn't it? You know, looking yeah. at one part of the body having an issue, whether it's mobility or whatever, and how that connects with the rest of the body. It's ex exactly the same with uh diet and looking after yourself from the inside then isn't right. it because these yeah. two practices are working alongside one another i guess through thousands yeah. of years in india aren't yeah. they yes yeah yeah so yoga so I, I ayurveda isn't attached to any religion is it it's um a cultural tradition it is a cultural tradition yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, and there's is it how much of the population still use it? I mean, it's it's very prevalent in what you do, but in the Indian population generally, are there a lot of people still interested in Ayurveda in their life? Primarily, again, the focus where Ayurveda is most popular is on treatment aspect. That if you get something, then you start looking at alternative therapies. Once you you know run through all your medication through. Um, allopathy then people switch to Ayurveda very few people actually get into Ayurveda in a preventive manner they will okay. do once they have an issue so that's human nature right as soon as there's an issue we react we don't proactively use Ayurveda and that's what I focus on so I keep talking about prevention prevention because it is so much more easier to prevent than to treat and they're two separate aspects people think you say Ayurveda they think treatment not necessarily that's one aspect of it so you you need treatment you go to a specialist you go to a center you get the panchakarma therapies and whatever they prescribe as a lifestyle specialist it's about prevention and that's when your doshas and nature and personality type comes in because there is an assessment that is done and then some recommendations are made yeah i was so, going to ask how do you um how do you prevent something you don't know it's going to happen so how does this how does this work there are three doshas right yes so so there are three doshas or energies which combine in different forms to make our physical constitution or nature the word is prakriti which translates as nature in english so that's your nature and these three combine in different forms to make seven prototypes and generally speaking most people can be clubbed into one of those seven but i always say that it is not it is not like everybody can be categorized in seven. These are indicative. You should take them with a pinch of salt, but they give you the direction you need to move into because ultimately it's going to be a matter of your own intuition, self-awareness on how you how you use that information. Yeah. So and then through those seven personalities, there are some generic recommendations which eventually will be customized for each person. OK. And that's when you find your own, it's like your own personalized journey through Ayurveda then. And it's yeah. the foods to use and things to use on your skin, certain oils or yeah. certain vegetables or whatever. And 
it isn't it isn't um a vegetarian diet is it no not traditionally no it isn't <laughs> yeah so. i think we again in in the west we presume that you know everything that comes from yoga you know you've got to be vegan <laughs> so <laughs> now i would like to touch upon this so where does vegetarianism come into it so ayurveda individually is just a science of natural healing how to improve your health vegetarianism comes once you start taking the spiritual aspect and yoga ayurveda eventually lead you towards that it's called sattva you must be familiar with it sattvic diet so the state of sattva if you wish to attain that the sattvic diet is a vegetarian diet but if you're not if you're going to be a wrestler a warrior then that then that may mean you are going to have a more ratsik diet ah i see i see so yeah and then have a vegetarian diet because it's a state of sattva that you're trying to create and that's where the link between the ayurveda and the yogic principles come in so the yeah. things that we hear about like ahimsa obviously no harm so it, this is the case of no harm to animals yeah right okay but that's a rigid path so yes but that's the path of sattva uh-huh. which is yeah so ayurveda you you the right path for want of a better word for a human yeah. through their ayurveda and their preventative aspects of their diet it doesn't necessarily have to be vegetarian then it's linked no? to two things one is your nature prakriti we spoke of and your goal in life so you match the two and then you can choose what you want to do so let's say a vata dosha which is air element would probably do better with some non vegetarian food in their diet but uh, uh, kapha may not need that they may do better with a vegan salad based diet not even vegan or just a more uh, uh, more a food with more uh, salads and raw foods and uh, less heavy uh, items in it so it depends. Mm, yeah. I have a very basic experience of ayurvedic diet. Um my father was born in Chandigarh mm. and um he didn't go into the ayurvedic practices in detail but we always had a very well-rounded um high vegetable and and lentil content in our diet. I think we only ever ate meat. twice a week which for a family growing up in England was quite unusual at that time <laughs> um but yet my my there was a friend of mine who quite a few years ago who actually um found an ayurvedic doctor somehow in England and had her doshas analyzed and to help with her mental health they found that she should not eat aubergines tomatoes and anything from that family yeah and she very very quickly found that her mental health balanced wow yeah yeah just through not yeah. eating those vegetables is this the type of thing that you're working with and that you're coming across with your clients then yeah so like i said this would go into the realm of treatment and i wouldn't treat a mental illness but it is more preventive and we'll get into prevention but yes how this would work is that each food item is linked to a specific energy that is has which is called virya it could be heating cooling properties and certain foods then are recommended for certain doshas and it becomes more specific when you have a particular disease because then the ayurvedic texts have specific recommendations so tomatoes for instance you would not eat if you have acidity so since because it increases that and you would instead have aloe vera and that would really help you with that 
aubergines and tomatoes in terms of mental health might and mental health generally is linked to vata dosha there is always vata dosha involved if there is a mental health issue there could be secondary you know uh, element to it as well so maybe the one person who did the assessment found some observed some things both in the physical and mental constitution there are two different constitutions again one is your physical body which is what doshas and your mental body which is gunas sattva rajas tamas so that yeah. two so then he would have observed what's um, to be noted but i'm assuming it wasn't just dietary changes they gave they would have given three four recommendations out of that one would have been dietary changes so yeah yeah you don't know which one worked out yeah yeah i think the actual i think her realization of the balance in her mental health was actually an aside to her yeah. wanting to start this ayurvedic path i don't think she actually went there for the treatment Okay. It was just that yeah. after, like you said, obviously you have this assessment of your dosha and, and the professional that she saw had picked up on her, her yeah. types and her conditions as a human. Yeah. Um, and they subsequently then realized that this yeah. issue, shall we say, that she needed treating for was balanced through the diet. So yeah. it was just um, completely fascinating, really, to realize that that happened to her. Yeah, that would make a lot of difference, right? So let's take mental health. Now we've spoken about vata dosha. What would you do for someone who's having, let's say, anxiety? That is clearly hundred percent a vata-related issue. In terms of diet, you would now increase. So vata people, anyways, tend to be very lean and very active, very mobile. Like dancers would typically have a lot of vata in them, and that means their diet tends to be very light. But the first thing vata would require is a bit heaviness in the diet. So ghee is always recommended. Many people will notice that adding ghee to their diet, vata people, not kapha, will make a lot of difference. So it's just a small addition, but it helps balance that energy. In terms of your yoga practices or other physical fitness activities, you will balance vata with more grounding uh, practices. So weight training, maybe once or twice a week, body weight training or more um, hatha-based practice, which requires holding poses for longer, would help balance that aspect of vata. And so Leading, what else would you do? You would environment, right? Vata is um, cold and movement aggravate vata. So when you travel, that is something that would aggravate. Once we finish this podcast where we talk for one hour, that is a vata aggravation. So it'll be good to have a warm cup of tea and be silent for 10 minutes before you. So this is all the ways that you will balance it out. And uh, how preventive would work if I have a session with the person I'll let them talk 15-20 minutes I will notice and you assess them for what their original nature is your prakriti and what the current state is that is called vikriti which is what you have done to your constitution due to your lifestyle as of today I identify that imbalance and I know that eventually this person will tend towards a vata related issue or a kapha related issue or a patita related issue and uh, if a vata person is showing instances in their life of events that are or environment that's aggravating vata then you know you have to counterbalance that so this is putting it in a nutshell too much information <laughs> no no not at all i think we have very um basic understanding of what it is and and i know when i've had conversations with people about ayurveda people kind of finally grasp onto this idea of a dosha and they maybe read a book that had six points in it and like oh i'm vata oh i'm pitta or whatever and 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 i don't know about it myself which is why i'm discussing it with you but 
you kind of get the impression that it isn't just a list of six things that you read in a book. <laughs> yeah, it's so yeah. not too much information at all. Not at all. I'm sure everyone will be really, really interested in understanding the depth of this because everything that we're delivered in the West is very much simplified. You know, it's all made, excuse the joke, digestible um, so we can easily, you know, grasp these things. Um, and I mean, the, the other thing that you do, you're a very kind of modern practitioner. Um, this is what we just said before we pressed record about modernizing these practices. Um, what are your, what are your sort of, um, I was going to say qualifications, but not necessarily qualifications, but you like you lean towards modernizing these practices, yeah. don't you? And bringing them up to date with science a little yeah. bit. Yeah, I do. So maybe I'll give a little bit of background about myself to, you know, have more context as to why I do that. So I am a math honors graduate. I was a MBA. I was a banker for almost a decade before I moved into into yoga and wellness. And that was my own journey in terms of what I really wanted to do. I grew up in a family which was a lot into wellness. So that was something I was personally passionate about. When I started Yoga Nama, I had written just a one line vision statement, which was yoga for everyday life. And everyday life is modern life. I I don't want to write or convey or share yoga Ayurveda in a way that nobody can understand or everybody feels, oh, this is too much. I just want a simple 10, you know, list of things that I can do. Or I just want to go to a dietitian who can give me what I need to eat or not eat. And I don't want to make it so complicated that it's not accessible because it took me a lot of time to, you know, tease out these concepts. There are a lot of heavy, heavily written books. And even for Yoga Sutras, right, you can go through multiple heavily written books to get the gist of it. And for me, my job as a Pitta, pitta person, right, I, one of my doshas is Pitta. And Pitta is fire, which is both digestion, metabolism and clarity. So Pitta is light or fire. You have light somewhere, you have clarity. And I see clarity a lot. So that was my nature, which I played to my strength. And now I want to simplify it. And I know you said easily digestible, but often what happens is that in order to make something easily digestible, we dilute it. I don't like doing that. So my journey has been to find that balance between simplifying without diluting that message. Yeah. So I like to modernize it because we live in a modern world. I want bankers like me, friends or family who don't have as much time to sit and spend hours studying these subjects to get the best out of it by you know incorporating as much as they need to it's still not enough that it's like a 10 page book you can read but slowly slowly through content the idea is to get the message across and I, mm. that's, yeah that's, that's a really good point the difference between simplifying and diluting yeah. they are actually two very different things in a, in in every subject that we touch aren't they there's there's a difference between pulling out a handful of of simplified points and just getting rid of the the crooks of it really yeah yeah and how do you in terms of i mean i mean the it's important like you said to modernize these practices so yeah. people who live in the modern world yeah. um can actually understand them and put them into context easier right. and like you know if you were to think of uh, analogies like you just did between ayurveda and yoga you know we, we can sort of align these things with the way that our brain works these days yeah. and yeah. and I mean, how do you, 
I kind of kind of started into another line of questioning now. How yeah. do you you obviously feel good about these practices being modernized and in yeah. terms of yoga as well? There's a lot of discussion at the moment about modernizing yoga practice. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I mean, one of the, the points that I've written down is what we just said about the difference between modernization and watering down. Um, so I imagine that you're not too into these things that you see, like people doing goat yoga and, and <laughs> yoga at parties with, uh, beer yoga and things like that. <laughs> you know, that's, I feel like I try not to invest too much time or energy into that. I think everybody takes away whatever they feel they need to from yoga. And it's but natural that as it scales up, as more and more people do it, there'll always be a segment which will do something which works for them, which may not really be the actual point of doing yoga, but we are not to judge. It's it's what they maybe people enjoy goat yoga. So, so that be it for them. From my perspective, I try to share what I believe is I think all I can do is really keep repeating my messages over and over again so they get across to people. And I think, yes, there are. it's not like I'm not touched or not aware of what happens under the name of yoga, but I think that's in a way capitalism because everything eventually gets diluted. And no matter what message you take, if you want to scale up, you start compromising on quality. If you want instant fame, you will somewhere do better marketing and invest less energy, less energy in content there's a balance that people find and uh, uh, I think to each person their own where they want to draw the line yeah and, yeah. yeah I mean this is a, a big uh, it, it's a big conversation at the moment isn't it in the yoga world when people are talking about yoga and Ayurveda and um, Indian philosophy about appropriation yeah. and um, like, like you just said, I mean, if people are, are learning about these practices, they're not going to have the full depth of the practice with immediate effect. Yeah. It and um, I mean, there were, we kind of had to remember that, that there were certain people from India, was it Vivekananda, who took these practices out to the West for people to learn about. So yeah. it isn't really like the West have stolen it or yeah. stolen these practices. These practices were were taken out there for the world to learn about. Yeah. So now what happened is the West likes to practice a certain way. That is why the style of yoga the West picked up was more uh, active, was more vinyasa based, was more powerful. Whereas we all grew up in India practicing yoga, which looked nothing like what people practice today. I remember when I mean, around 2014 or something, I picked up a yoga CD by one of the Western teachers and I thought I'll play it and I play and I'm practicing with it. I gave up in five minutes. What the hell is this? This, this was <gasps> I used to practice for me. It was completely alien. And that time I was just a banker. I had no interest other than my usual 20, 30 minute morning yoga practice. And then, then eventually when I moved to Mysore and the training and I was exposed to this whole another experience of yoga i understood what's being picked up so if you in fact i uh, you might, may remember i did the world trip in 2019 we traveled mm -hmm. so many and it was so interesting you know first we were in asia and you would see people doing tai chi or you know i 
you know, I, just general Asian stuff. You would ne I never saw a person running on the streets. From Asia, we moved straight to Australia. And as we are driving, like for the first time in three months, I'm seeing someone running on the streets. People don't run as much here. It's coming up now because of the Western influence, the way Asians or Indians used to traditionally practice physical fitness on an everyday life basis was very different. And West is more Vata dominant, more aggressive, more uh, movement based, whereas here it was more preserving energy. Let's not, uh, you know, give away prana or chi or whatever you call it. They were slower practices, not to get into martial arts because that's a warrior clan uh, practice, but I'm talking <laughs> about everyday life and everyday people. So there is a difference and it's a stark difference. And but I think that's what the West likes and maybe the environment, the culture is it's more adaptable for them. But it does somehow dilute the way uh, we now look at yoga. So one of the trainings that I did early on in my journey, there was no pranayam session. It was a part of our curriculum. We were taught and then it was up to us if after the session we wanted to practice pranayam. There was no meditation session. I went back to Mysore to take a one month pranayam training under BNS Iyengar because I wanted to understand it more. So that's what happens when there is because why are they not spending so much time on pranayam because no one wants to learn people want to come be able to do some advanced poses go back and you know to their studios and teach so again it goes back it's what the students want how many students come and say i want to learn pranayama and how many students come and say i want to learn headstand so what so it's a it's a it's a cycle right it's a full circle of life you can't blame one person mm -hmm. supply and demand what people are asking for is what people are learning and yeah. because of that the if if in that very popular training pranayam was like completely sidelined and when you know a very lovely professor of sanskrit used to come and teach us yoga sutras there would be three of us sitting in the front and everybody at the back just bored so it, it is a it is just a representation of what people want yeah the yeah. teachers are only giving what students are asking for so yeah. who do you blame in this cycle the west the student india i don't know <laughs> yeah exactly and i mean like you said you've done your study in india so the indian schools i don't like using the word blame it's not yeah. you know but the indian schools you would think would be the ones who are taking the mantle of this and delivering i guess you could say proper training well, they don't, they deliver what they know still. Because I mean, would everybody in India ever really understand all these philosophies and pranayam practices themselves yeah. anyway, you know? Yeah. Um, and it's really interesting that you talk about your own experiences of yoga as a youngster. Um, tell us, tell me more about that. Tell me, tell us <laughs> more about that. Because this is a thing we kind of, Again, in the West, I think sometimes um, we're given the impression that everybody in India is like practicing, you know, yoga and pranayama and meditation all day, every day. And if I didn't have friends in India, I might still be under that impression. But uh, it'd be, just, just tell us about your experience of yoga practice as an Indian person in Indian daily life. Is everybody really going to school and sitting in lotus pose in a loincloth? <laughs> no, 
everybody but a lot of people do you will see them in the parks that's how i started right there was a book in hindi which my dad had which has those penciled drawings line drawings of various yoga poses and that's how i started i still have that torn dilapidated book with me for memory's sake oh, you wow. mark out the poses and i would do them i would hold them i would have my own 30 seconds one minute i would time myself that's how it started and that's how a lot of people do books were very popular yoga teachers are there this there these small shalas where people go which is they they won't charge you much that's mostly charity based so yoga was always a part of the culture more so in our parents generation than in our generation and even more so in our grandparents generation so to say it actually started um, yoga became popular but because of two people one is the founder of uh, uh this big yoga place in mumbai i'm forgetting the name but his name was yogendra nath ji the yoga institute of mumbai and the other one is uh, one in lonavla so these two people around the early 1960s i should say 70s i don't know exact time but they were the two people who brought yoga back into normal everyday life whereas it was more of a esoteric practice before that you may have heard of people like uh, bks ayanga talk about it in one of the documentaries that people used to think if you're practicing yoga you are like not a part of their everyday life not a part of regular life so it wasn't as much a part of it but yes when those two people made it uh brought it back and they did a lot of scientific studies they both studied under the same teacher i have written about it in kora but now my memories <laughs> i'm forgetting their names but yogendranath ji and a very popular lonavla based school so they uh, they brought it back to modern life uh-huh. you know speaking so from there people started practicing and then there the western people discovered the mysore uh, school and from there the mysore practice which is much more dynamic due to the uh, you know the nature of postures uh, went up but if you go to other regular schools you do sun salutations headstand four five poses and then that would be it you wouldn't do 84 poses for sure in an everyday mm. yeah. yeah it's really interesting to actually learn how yoga has has manifested in india in the last 100 years because yeah. again we we know about vivekananda ayenga desikacha people like that these kind of the the men of modern yoga who brought yeah. yoga to the west yeah. and we're kind of under the impression that yoga has always consistently been a solid philosophical practice in india So it's really interesting to hear from you that it kind of phased out a little in the last few generations. No, I, I just want to then make a little correction here that as a philosophy yoga was always there. The practice okay. of hatha yoga. Hatha yoga is the physical practice of yoga which became popular around the medieval times when the everybody must have heard of the text hatha yoga pradipika. Yeah. So originally yoga was a spiritual practice and the only two three postures you would hear of would be padmasana and siddhasana or two three just meditative postures asana meant a seat for meditation not mm-hmm. 84 poses or 108 poses so that philosophy was always there meditation was always a part my parents were meditators since i since you know since i know so meditation has been an integral part not everybody does but those who don't meditate will do some ritual in lieu of meditation which could be idol worship or some other you know traditional ritual of their uh, of their community 
when it comes to the physical practice of yoga yes there was this hatha yoga which for a point in time when the Britishers came was really looked down upon because hatha yogis were also a part of the nath community which is a warrior clan so the Britishers didn't like them they try to push it out they try to talk about it as something only uh, you know what's the politically correct word to say backward people of uh, you know whatever of this country are doing and more educated people don't do that okay so the hatha yoga was little bit relegated to the backstage till it was brought back for its health benefits so when it made its way back in the last century it was because of the physical health benefits not necessarily as much about uh, spirituality but let's look at it they used it as a hook to get people into yoga and mm -hmm. many of them would then filter out into going into more uh, intrinsic practices like pranayama and meditation mm -hmm. yeah it's, it's honestly incredibly interesting to actually understand that this same sort of thing happened in india um and like you said there are different dynamics between different communities different practices of hinduism and and yoga is a cultural practice, not um, necessarily a religious one. It can be linked to, to Hinduism, can't it? But it isn't actually a Hindu specific practice or yeah. This is another this is another deep dynamic, isn't it? <laughs> I think religion is a different element to philosophy and I I think at some point in time had this own bias about what religion is. And to be honest, I wasn't very sure of because religion then comes with a lot of superstition, dogma, suppression, which are aspects of it that I as a child, as a woman, right, you don't always align with because it's not always in favor of women. So I had actually ignored a lot of this growing up because I thought it was all one part. It's religion and the religion says I as a woman can't do this, can't do that. And I was my own rebel about it. It was the first time when I read the Yoga Sutras, I was I was blown away. I was like, my God, look at this. There is no religion. There is no God. There is nothing in it it's just a philosophy and it's telling me how i can work on myself i i went berserk when i first read yoga sutras then i was reading more and more because it's like i had all these years and i didn't want to tap into it because i thought it was religious and it was dogmatic and it's going to tell me stuff like you know stuff that i don't believe in because i grew up in a family which wasn't superstitious at all but then i for me that distinction was made when i first read yoga sutras then i read the bhagavad gita and i derived my own knowledge or inferences out of it and i think both are brilliant texts and they're both very closely interlinked when you start uh, when you start understanding their true message so for me personally they're very distinct uh, religion and philosophy i like to separate them yeah it can yeah. be linked you can because religion gives you faith and it gives you that softness and if you are uh, a more sattvic person not a dogmatic religious person in a manner of speaking it can add a lot of value it can enhance your experience if you're more uh, if you're more secular in for the lack of another word like me you can separate it from religion and get a lot of value out of these texts but it'll take time mm -hmm. it'll take a lot of time mm -hmm. and it's, it's it'll take your whole life in a way because yeah. it's an ongoing journey. Well, yeah. it is. It's a, the, the entire thing is a lifetime practice, isn't it? It's yeah. not something yeah. that you just learn, like kicking a football or something, is it? It's a, like like you said, you realized this was something that, that was going to be a, a development practice. So yeah. it's really perfectly OK to practice yoga and not be Hindu. Yeah. Everybody should practice yoga, but you should equally Yay! not respect the culture. That's that's all there is to it. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, because I think this is another thing with all these conversations that are going on um, around us on Instagram. There's an awful lot um, about who should do yoga and who has the right to teach yoga and things like that. And I feel like this is my personal opinion and I'm never scared of putting my personal opinion out there. I feel like it's getting a little dictatorial you should do this. You should not practice yoga. And I actually had a conversation with a friend of mine who is a white woman teaching yoga. And she's become incredibly insecure about what she's doing. And I don't imagine that she's the only one because she's constantly getting these messages from people who are fighting this fight of authenticity and recognize the religion behind yoga. And she's suddenly feeling an absolute fake and a failure. And I wonder how many other non-Indian yoga teachers have got that feeling because we're given the impression that yoga has to be attached to a religion. That I think is like you said, it's a controversial topic and I haven't engaged in, like I said, in these conversations, I generally don't because again, it comes back to me, what is my message that I want to send out? And I, I, I don't know how it's fair if people have, as long as you're doing something you understand, I think it's fine. Don't do stuff that you don't understand. If you don't understand a mantra, you don't have to chant it. And if, if, you, if you don't understand the Sanskrit uh, concepts behind, you don't have to talk about them. You talk about what you have learned and you, you encapsulate that. And I think that should be fine. Because there are, and it, if this discussion cannot be solved by yoga teachers, this is more of a bigger discussion than you should ask whether or not teacher training should happen anywhere outside of India. That's a question to then ask if at all and who who's the authority for that i don't know how how this would evolve but for me personally as long as you understand what you're talking about you give due respect to the culture where it comes from and it's not just in india right i i just recently started following this lady who's an inuit from canada and she mm -hmm. talks about like she's sharing her culture and everything and i like that this is somebody who understands and she's talking about it so definitely more should be done and i realize from there to promote people who are from the culture which which is not there so i think a little bit of uh, uh what do you call i don't know the word for it would be there because people who actually belong from the community and who understand more about it are not able to get ahead because either because of language barrier or because they are not making the practice palatable for the western you know taste or for any other reasons that's the question that's a bigger question as to how do you promote people who deserve to be promoted who mm -hmm. are from the community vis-a-vis -vis people who are already teaching they can contribute to that they can counterbalance their teaching practice by doing something for the native uh, people of the culture as well yeah i think that's the thing there's two that's two two sides to this discuss this oh i'm getting tongue-tied two sides to the discussion of authenticity aren't they i think the the like you said the authenticity of the practice in terms of recognition of where it comes from and and what it means but yeah. also the authenticity of of whoever as an individual teacher like I don't say namaste at the end of my classes. Yeah. Um, I've been asked by students and by employers why I won't do that. 
Yeah. And I used to. Yeah. But then I realized that I was doing it just because. Yeah. And I didn't really understand why I should do it. And I had a conversation actually with an Indian student, a, a man who came to one of my classes in England. And he explained to me that even though we have, and this might be something that the readers have come, uh, the listeners have come across and maybe not. Um, we have this explanation of namaste as being the light in me recognizes the light <laughs> in you. And he was like, it doesn't really explain doesn't really mean that <laughs> you I know? only teachers in the west do namaste at the end of the class i yeah. sort of, i can't do it i never do it i think i eventually end up saying thank you or something you don't say namaste at the end of anything anyway it's something you do at the beginning when you greet someone and this 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 thing has become more of a western habit than an indian habit yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> i mean it, it, it Again, it's that idea of something being diluted, isn't yeah. it? And this is what he was explaining to me. He said, not even everywhere in India uses it. It depends on what region you're from. And this yeah. is the thing, in the West, we always talk about yoga, Hindu, India. It's such a vast religion and such a vast country that yeah. where you live in India is going to be very different to the other coast. Yeah, in India, to the North, to the South, to Rishikesh. You can't just say that something is Indian because, well, India is huge. Mm -hmm. And um, this was his point. Like, and, and I did, I've never said it after I had that conversation with him. I couldn't bring myself to say it anymore because I had this realization that my authenticity as a teacher, I didn't have any depth to saying that. Um, so now because there are so many mixed conversations around what it means where it's from etc cetera, etc cetera. i just don't say it i say yeah. thank you at the end <laughs> you know <laughs> because like you said if i would it, it, it it's something that you do at the beginning of a meeting with somebody yeah and now you only do, do it with elders if someone's uh, like my grandmother or my mother-in-law you do it with elders if people same age group or even in a regular it's not like teachers in india go to school and do namaste to their students no you just you just you, i that is not that is used in very uh, you know in very formal locations only okay so if you were to come to one of our yoga classes over here in copenhagen and everybody's going namaste namaste you would think that we were a little bit crazy I don't know. I would first when I'm outside think it's polite, but if it's happening repeatedly, I would. I don't know how I would react. I'd have to go through it. <laughs> so we're just basically all being overly polite. <laughs> Amazing! It'd be so good to know what other things that everybody's doing that are just making us look a little kooky, really. <laughs> oh dear, it's been it it this is just a fascinating conversation and I'm really sure that we could dive into this an awful lot more. And I honestly have only asked you, and I think I say this every episode, I've only asked you a handful of the questions that I'd written. <laughs> yeah. But no, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on. Um, I, I, I think we, we've, We've done our bite-sized time now, I think. <laughs> um, so 
just tell us um, if there's anything, just to sort of close the conversation, if there's anything that you're working on at the moment that would be of interest to people who are listening, or just tell us, like, give us your website and where people can find you so they can follow up with you on all this fantastic information. Yeah, thank you. So I can be found on Yoganama on Instagram and yoganama.com is my website. There's a lot of new stuff coming up. I already have two ebooks out. You can find them on amazon.com as well under my name, Namita Piparaya. <laughs> and uh, I've also recently launched Yoganama TV. You'll find it via my website, which is a collection of almost 100 plus yoga, pranayama, meditation videos that you can practice anytime that you like. And I'm working on some stuff which is going to help me combine traditional understanding of uh, subtle anatomy and chakras with the modern understanding of anatomy. And hopefully that should come around around September to bring more moderation into this field of yoga. Because I see a lot of people in the West go all into the physical anatomy, don't do forward bends, there is no need for counter poses, this is important, that is important, which is all valid. But it is completely disconnected from the original reason these postures were done, which is the subtle anatomy, the pranic system. And once I finish my studies of modern anatomy, I combine the two and bring something more interesting. Hopefully that will add value to all of you. That sounds wonderful because, yeah, I think, um, sorry, I was supposed to be closing. <laughs> this is, I, yeah, I, I think the way I introduced something. <laughs> I, I, I mean, again, this, these are things that we hear of when we do our training, you know, the subtle body, the physical body. Yeah. But that's a really good point that, that we kind of lose the purpose of what these practices are. I've been getting into... Tai Chi. Oh, here's the cat. I did warn you that the cat would say hello. <laughs> um, I've been really getting interested in, in Qigong lately, and that is very much connected with, with subtle body. Um, and we really lose that in our yoga practice because we all seem to have become a little anatomy obsessed. <laughs> and yeah, that I'd be really interested to look at that stuff when you've put that out. I'm sure that I will connect with it because we always do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, thanks, thanks, Miss. It was wonderful chatting with you, and uh, hope to hope to connect again, not just for yeah. the podcast and otherwise as well. <laughs> Absolutely, Namita. Thank you so much. That was a really, really wonderful conversation on debunking some of the ideas around a lot of popular conversations and opening us up to Ayurveda as well. That's uh, that's super interesting. So if anybody, yeah. hello, Kat, if anybody <laughs> has got any questions or anything, you can find me on um, Instagram and you can find Namita on Instagram as well. I will post all this stuff on our page so you've got the right connection for her. Um, and yeah, enjoy. I will see you next month. Thank you very much. And goodbye.